You know, my entire life, ever since the first time I read Filler in Further, I've been waiting for some powerful being to come down and say, Quentin Coldwater, you are the one. Every book, every movie, it's about one special guy chosen. You know, in real life, for every one guy, there are a billion people who aren't. <laughs> Almost none of us are the one. Ember said... Ember is a, a little out of touch, I think. <laughs> you're a better magician. And you're a better person. And I think that if he'd met you, he wouldn't be so sure that it's me. You're the one that they say shows up every single time. It's you. I want to be the one. I do. I've... It's just... It's the adult part of me. The part of me that understands how magic works. It just, it just keeps screaming that it's you. Every time that Jane reset the loop, she changed something. What if I change something? What if I give the blade to you? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Physical Kids Weekly, episode 113. I'm Clara. And I'm Danny. And we are delighted to have Lev Grossman back on the show to talk to us about the season one finale. Have you brought me little cakes? Hi, Lev. Hi, guys. <laughs> what was that? Good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you. Um, so uh, I want to get into the episode pretty quickly, but I have a couple questions. So we hear there's a magician's comic book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a terrible thing to, 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 that's a piece of information to have, <laughs> to have, have leaked. <clears throat> oh no, I'm sorry. Book, um, yet. Okay. Um, but there's, there's every chance that there will be one. Um, I really probably shouldn't say anything more than that um, okay. <laughs> because uh, people who are doing it should probably make that announcement. All right. Well, uh, we can, I can leave that out entirely. I'm sorry. He uh, thought that it was no, public no, why information. Not, why not leave it in as a, as a tan tantalizing tidbit, but I'm really, <laughs> really psyched about uh, that. There's an artist, there's a writer, uh, they're amazing. Um, it should be super exciting. And I've already, <laughs> I've already said too much. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I'm definitely excited, so I, I won't make you say anything else. <laughs> um, the the other thing that I just sort of wanted to talk about was I, I just realized we haven't really talked about this. I mean, the, we've talked about the fact that like the books do obviously draw on a lot of other properties. They draw on the Chronicles of Narnia and Harry Potter and and things like Brideshead Revisited. Um, but I was curious what other influence or references there are. And especially things that we might have missed as readers who maybe, I, I think like a lot of your fans are, um, especially fans who came in through the TV show, are in a younger generation. I'm curious if there's anything you would point us to. Gosh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sponge, um, <laughs> a, a, re, a reed in the wind. I, I get influenced by a lot of things that come across my transom. Um, definitely not just books. Um, mm. Close... Um, uh, Close, close readers uh, of the of the books and viewers of the show will, may sense that I was in a, a heavy Venture Brothers phase when I was 
Simpsons. Um, I've watched and rewatched Bench Brothers uh, really <laughs> a lot of times, and the show and the tone of that show and the humor uh, and the intelligence intelligence of it uh, were something I really were things that I really tried to learn from. Which it's sort of a funny thing to say. Um, haven't thought about the Bench Brothers for a while, but they were a big part of my media diet uh, for a while. And then there are more obvious things. Um, I'm always reminded um, whenever I think about it, how big an influence Alan Moore has been on me. Uh, in particular, Watchmen, and maybe even more in particular, his run on Miracle Man, which is less well known. Um, but uh, we almost forget how completely, completely Alan Moore reinvented superhero comics. Um, when Watchmen appeared, yeah, uh, because everything else now looks so much like Watchmen, uh, we sort of forget how radical that was. And I really strongly wanted the magicians to be like that in tone, in the way that it really, you know, came at some of the basic assumptions of the of the genre in a way that, you know, was this strange combination of hate and love, and it sort of attacked some of the basic assumptions of of this kind of fantasy um, uh, in an attempt to sort of somehow give them more integrity by doing so. Yeah. Uh, so there's that, there's some connection between the mountain goats and the magicians that I, that I don't <laughs> honestly fully understand very early on. And I, 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 I got like a compilation, the, the believe you're the magazine, the believer, never seen the believer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's magazines put out by the people who do uh, McSweeney's. I don't even know if it exists anymore. Um, I used to write for it. Uh, they did a music issue. They did a music issue, and there was a compilation CD that came with it. And those things are almost always terrible, except this one was great, and it had the mountain goats on it. Um, and I started listening to them a lot, uh, and so that was in the well. I, I feel like it's really like there was this moment in the '90s where there was a lot of a lot of stuff like that, like a lot of. Um, sort of different ways of marketing music and and uh, online. It was like before everyone got afraid of MP3s <laughs> and uh, they were still sort of doing a lot of like interesting things. I remember that uh, Matador Records used to release um, like songs, like multiple songs off an album every week or something like that. <laughs> That's how I learned yeah. a lot. There's lots of just random stuff flying around and the Mountain Goats really stuck with me. They have uh, they were he, I guess, since it's just John Darnell, has this sort of very um, powerful sort of verbal intelligence. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of writers who are big fan um, goats, fan fan people. I know John Green is, and um, Rainbow Roll is as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, hmm. so the other questions I have are uh, honestly around something totally different. I, I think I've been thinking about this a lot lately because you and I have a fair number of like little two-minute conversations. Um, we do. <laughs> we do. And I, I was just curious to ask you what it's like to go from being a fan of all of these, like, all of these properties, things like Narnia and Harry Potter, which really do have fandoms, to, like, having fans yourself. Um, that's a good, it's a good question. Uh, it's, a, it's a really, it's a really great thing. Um, it's one of those things that's, so great it's almost painful like it's um 
you know, there's a there's like a lot of people. I I I I, I struggle with that. What do you call it when you feel like you're a fraud all the time? Imposter syndrome. Oh yeah. Uh huh. Uh, I, <laughs> I have a lot of imposter syndrome um, because I because uh, I um, you know when you're uh, a, when you're a real big fan of something, you you read it, or you watch it, and you think, wow, this is like, you know. This is amazing. Like I, mm. I don't know where this comes from. This, this is something that somebody did that I don't understand how a, a, a person can do it. When I'm a big fan of something, that's what I feel like. How could a human being have done this? Mm. Uh, for people to be fans of, of the magicians, it, uh, it makes me feel weird because I know the people who write great things are not humans at all, but they are in <laughs> fact over beings of some kind. Um, so for people to mistake me for for one of those beings is 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 pleasurably confused it's pleasurably confusing <laughs> I, I you know i totally get that because i think like one of the things that i have been thinking about is right when you're a fan you have this like idea in your head about who the person is who like wrote the books or is acting in the show or you know whatever else it is it's, you know playing the music and writing the music and like you you build up this like picture of what their motivations are and what drives them and that picture is almost always way less complex than like what reality is actually like like people are more interesting than that and you know less i mean they're they're less godlike right i mean that's just sort of how people are they're not gods um. <laughs> it's true and i also realized one realizes how powerfully collaborative um uh, reading is as an activity. Mm. I mean, people bring enormously powerful emotions and ideas and visions to um, stuff that I've written, uh, which you know often goes beyond or in another direction from uh, what I had when I was writing it. Um, which isn't to say that I'm a bad writer or something, but it just shows that people can be great readers. People can mm. just imbue books with just meanings and complexity and and powerful emotions that. Um, it's just, it's just an amazing thing. Um, you know, you're just, when you're writing, you're just scratching down these little words on a piece of paper. You know, you're just, it's a very small amount of data. You know, the whole magician's novel is about, you know, one megabyte. Uh, <laughs> it's just this, you know, little scratches of words in, in a linear order. Um, you give people so little and they make so much out of it. I don't know. I don't know. It's a complicated thing. I'm very aware that um, when I meet writers, I, I, you can you can really sort them into one into those who were fans first and those who weren't, um, and those who had success early and who had success late. Those who, there are those there are writers who have been successful who were successful so fast and so young they have they have forgotten what it was like to be a huge failure. Maybe they never were a huge failure. Um, I really struggled for the first twenty years of my writing career. And I spent that time, um, you know, being a big fan of other writers, even sometimes meeting them as a fan and thinking, you know, it's just a different world that they inhabit. Um, mm. And then to cross over, it, it's a, it's sort of a profound thing for you to happen, to happen, to happen to somebody in, in their middle age, which is what is how it happened for me. Do you feel like you have an image in your, in your head, like on the other side of who your fans are? <laughs> They're quite well. I mean, I I do. They're quite diverse. Um, I mean, some some of them uh, some some of them are, are hardcore fantasy people, um, and then there's there's a whole there's a whole sort of something I hear a lot is this is the first fantasy novel I ever read. Hmm. 
because it was shelved in that other, and it wasn't necessarily shelved in the fantasy aisle. Um, there's a lot of people who won't read that from that aisle and won't read stuff that was published by Tor and other fantasy publishers. Um, they're, just not, they're just not into that shit. Um, <laughs> so I meet a lot of people who, you know, who don't come from that place. So that, in that sense, they're, they're sort of, they're, 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 they're quite diverse, I guess. Yeah. Um, so speaking of fans, we actually have some questions from our listeners who are also your fans. Um, this one is from Logan, and she asks if you could go back and change one things about one thing about the books, and uh, she says, and I mean any minuscule detail, would you? What would it be? And have you been able to in the show adaptation? Uh, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. Um, it 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 it, uh, it it requires a slightly complicated <laughs> answer. If I could change things in the books, um, yeah. Uh, Oh, I definitely would. I definitely would. For starters, I made several factual errors, which I will never live down. <laughs> and, you know, it can be hard to get that stuff changed in reprintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, some, some, some bad continuity errors, uh, which I really regret. Some just factual errors. Uh, there's the phrase in The Magician's Hits Like a Girl, which I will never live down. <laughs> was trying to do this thing with kind of free and direct discourse where it was kind of coming out of Quentin's consciousness, but it didn't really play that way. Um, and it's been attributed to me, and, and, and that's fair, and I wish it were not in there. Uh, uh, you know, I think at some point I say there's eight people with there's really seven. You know, this silly stuff like that. Um, and I, uh, I wish I could just take a, a, a red pen to it. Um, yeah. But then there's stuff that uh, that happens in the books, which is, which does it get corrected in the in the TV show? In a couple of cases, um, they made changes to they made some changes in the TV show, um, which uh, which I liked. Mm. Um, they explained a couple of things which don't get explained in the books. Um, it's never explicitly explained. Well, there's a ha- sort of a semi explanation for why Julia does not get into breakfields. Um, they have a better one um, in the show. So there's, you know, there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, it's, that, that's the, uh, it's the only one that springs to mind. Um, we actually talked about that. Um, we talked about that last week when we were talking to, to Henry Myers because that was, that was the episode. That was, it was uh, 112, so it's the big, like, reveal that this is an AU and that um, Jane specifically like this is the thing she changed is, is making Julia go out on her own to become scrappier. And I think intent, like the intent was to get her to be better at magic through frustration. <laughs> they really lean into the time loop um, angle of the, of the books, um, which it's not something I especially lean to uh, in the books. It, it's a, it's something that comes in, you know, relatively late I don't push it because time time travel, you know, if you stare too directly at time travel, you start tying yourself into all kinds of logical knots. knots. <laughs> we, 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 we walk in the books, we sort of stroll briskly past the time travel angle, but they really go, they really go into it uh, and they, um, they, they work through it. Yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of taking like a brisk stroll past, like speed walking past time travel. All novelists. <laughs> Where the logical weak points are in their books, and they don't like to talk about it. Um, but we all have them. 
there's this episode of a Star Trek Voyager that um, that made me think of uh, where uh, they go back. It's a two-part episode. They like go back in time uh, to the 20th century because you have to do that in every single Star Trek. Um, and uh, they're like in Santa Monica, which is where I grew up. So it was like <laughs> fun for me to like see it, see Star Trek where I was. Um, and Captain Janeway is like sitting at a computer talking to one of the other characters about time travel. And she goes, the future is the past, the past is the future. It all gives me a big headache. <laughs> I just think that's like, that's basically what time travel is in a nutshell. And whatever writer got that into that episode must have been very proud of themselves. <laughs> there was, they did great work with time travel in, in Star Trek, though. I mean, one of my oh, yeah. favorite episodes is a time loop episode of Star Trek, um, which I'm blanking on the name of. It's the next generation. It's the one where Kelsey Grammer shows up at the end. Uh, uh, and I think they run through a time loop three or four times, and they have to figure out that they're in a time loop and how to get out of it. They handle it really, really well. And then I think in Deep Space Nine, they go back to the Trouble with the Tribbles episode. Right, uh, which is a great, I mean, that is a great episode of Deep Space Nine, especially because, yeah. like, you get Judzia all over the place being Judzia. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to deal with the fact that the Klingons look different. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so they say something like, "What? What's what the foreheads?" And worse, sort of says, "I don't want to talk about it." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. There's there's a lot of great time travel in, in Star Trek for sure. And now they're doing like proper AU with the reboot. So yeah, I'm interested in that. Um, I also wrote a time. I, I ended up writing a time loop short story, uh, which is unconnected to the Magicians Universe, um, but which I'm hopefully doing some kind of larger, a larger project with. Um, cool. Anyway, <laughs> wasn't well, there wasn't there a short story you wrote for like that summer compilation? Right. Yes. I really was, liked that one. It didn't it have to do with time travel too. It did. That was a time loop story. That's a time loop I, story. I really yeah. liked that one. <laughs> yeah, um, I, we may not have seen the last of that story, which I liked. I liked the voice. I love voices in it a lot, and um, I may be doing something else with it. Uh, if it <laughs> we'll see. I feel like there's so much time travel out there, like in TV and movies, and uh, I feel like we're seeing more interesting things than we used to. Like, I mean, like Looper, right? Is such a weird time travel movie. And... Oh, but Looper's so good. <laughs> and like- I, did you like Looper? I saw it on a plane, which is not the best circumstance <laughs> I wish to see it. Um, I, go back. I liked it. I feel like I'm really biased, though, because I, I pretty much like anything that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, touches. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like I'm feel like I like I'm not nerdy enough to be like, this is wrong, like, and point out the, like what's wrong with time travel. I, I mean, I can tell when something's really wrong, but, like, I can't point out, like, little flaws. Like, I know... Like, a lot of really nerdy people have problems with uh, Harry Potter time travel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I honestly, I don't think I know if I like it or not. Like, I think I've seen it twice now. And both times I sort of have come away with it like, I'm not sure I know what that is. (laughs) I don't know. I don't remember the story all that well. But I remember thinking that the direction style and a lot of that was really good. Is Is it Doug Liman who directed that? It was Ryan Johnson who's doing the new Star Wars, I think. <laughs> yeah, what's your what's your favorite uh, time travel thing? Uh, you'll know I'm a big sap when I tell you the truth, which is Groundhog Day. I loved Groundhog Day so much. <laughs> it's so great. I just rewatched that recently. <laughs> um, uh, although, you know, strong, uh, uh, 
Edge of Tomorrow, which actually was directed by Doug Liman, um, is actually a really underrated movie that Tom is Cruise... That, um, yeah, it, that is fantastic. Is it? Is it is. I, I can't watch Tom Cruise. Like, Trust me. Okay, so first of all, you're not just watching Tom Cruise, so remember that. You're also watching... Um, what's her name? Uh, Emily Blunt. Yeah, Emily Blunt, who is amazing. True, true. Yeah. Um, she is. And you, do, you get to see Tom Cruise's ass kicked a lot in that movie. Oh, not so say, many times. He dies many times. He dies you know, over and over and over again. That sounds might potentially be worth watching then. <laughs> way better than you. <laughs> I've heard really good things about it. I've just like, I just have like this thing where I just like, Tom Cruise, like, stay away. It has right. a second name too, doesn't it? I can't remember if Edge of Tomorrow is like the name that it has now that it's on. I don't know if you can say on video anymore, but yeah, it did have theaters. a different name. <laughs> yeah, it has like a subtitle, like "Live, Die, Repeat," which then sometimes gets used as its name. It's, it's quite, it's confusing. It is though. It is a really fantastic movie, and I, I like refused to watch it for the longest time. And my husband was like, "No, you have to watch this. Is it's actually good." And I didn't believe him because he liked Lucy. Um, <laughs> Lucy was garbage. <laughs> I, I couldn't even get it's through bad. it. Yeah, I, I like we went like him and a friend of ours and then me and one of my really good friends uh, and it like it was like a total male female split like me and Annie were just like can we leave now <laughs> and uh, he and our friend and his were just like loving it and I don't I still don't understand and he's probably going to have a field day with us when he does the Easter egg for this episode I, I'll watch <laughs> I'll watch a lot with for Scarlett Johansson but I couldn't quite get through that one no, did you watch was... Ghost in the Shell? What? Did you watch Ghost in the Shell? I did. I actually watched it recently, and it, like, lost me, like, halfway through. Because I, like, really do like the original anime. And I was just like, uh, this is really different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't make myself do it. <laughs> so. I also really don't like that director. Who's the director? Um, it's, a uh, I can't It's Rupert something. He also did, uh... Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh, yeah. All I can think right now is Rupert Catwin Trogdor the Third. So <laughs> But good action movies that came out recently. Atomic Blonde is amazing. Uh, I can't see that. That looks really uh, It was I like movie. It is basically essentially a female James Bond movie and it's absolutely amazing. But it's also based off of a graphic novel. I want it. Uh, the other thing I'm really excited about is the new Kingsman comes out the day after my birthday. Uh, I, I, I'm a little concerned because I, I feel like sequ- Western sequel doesn't often work. Uh, the trailer we'll looks see. good, though, is the funny thing. I mean, it looks like Kingsman, which is what I want. <laughs> I'm yeah. interested to see it for sure. I really love the first one. <laughs> Uh, okay, okay, so uh, I should ask the other person's question before we get too far into um, <laughs> just chit-chat. Uh, so Naomi asks, is there anything in the show adaptation that you wish could have happened in the last two seasons? So is there anything that like you feel like we missed uh, that you would love to see come on screen specifically in the last two seasons? Wait, wait, wait. anything from the books that I wish had been in the show? Yeah, yeah. so far. Not like that will be in the future. I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, there's lots of things that I wish um, that I wish that we'd had. Um, there's lots of bits from the um, uh, from the early couple, early few chapters of the 
magicians, which they sort of skip past. They move mm. very quickly in the in the in the pilot episode to the um, the arrival of the beast. Um, there's little bits in the um, in the early chapters that I that I always really liked. I always really liked when they go rowing in the Hudson for some reason, and they're sort mm. of there in the sunlight, but they, or in the summertime, and they can see everybody else is sort of in the winter and. Um, I always, always liked that image. I always wanted to see it on screen, and I'm sorry not to. Um, uh, I was so, I was sorry that they that they couldn't work it in. Maybe we'll get it in the comic book, which we're not talking about. Uh, <laughs> uh, what else? Oh, you know, in even in the um, the script for one thirteen to draw it back to what we're actually supposed to be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, Humble Drum the bear appears in the bar scene, and then when they actually shot it, they didn't have a bear. They had right. a little dog. Because it was hibernating. <laughs> nothing against, I don't have anything against little dogs, but you know, there was a little scene for Humble Drum. He had some lines. Sorry that he didn't, um, didn't make it in. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I, I love that scene. When I went back and read that chapter when we were interviewing Brittany, uh, <laughs> and it's just so funny in like, these really sideways ways, like little turns of phrase. I think I mentioned some of them to you, but I just like, I, I love that scene. I'm a little sad that we didn't get it too. Yeah. Also the dog didn't talk. He didn't talk. I know. Mm -hmm. Talking animals. You didn't, you need them in Fillory. The only real talking animal we've had so far is, um, the bunny that says pregnant. (laughs) Pregnant. Yeah, the sloth needs a translator, which is, you know, I think the sloth should should be able to speak for herself. Um, <laughs> likewise, the questing beast turned out to sort of be partly human, so she doesn't really count as a talking animal. Um, yeah. I think talking animals are just expensive and hard to do well on, on TV. Probably. Yeah, it comes off humorous, because, like, when they used it in the first season with, like, Penny's, like, sequence of him talking about... Uh, the fillery book that he read is like he's like oh yeah this animal and it just changed every time <laughs> I, I thought it was legit funny um, yeah it was but, funny i think with like cg though right like you end up with weird what is the name of that um that stupid movie uh with the the professor who talks to animals mm, are you talking about miss dr doolittle yeah but like the cgi on that always looks so fake <laughs> with their lips yeah. moving. All right, episode. Yes, thank you. You, you. Thank you for dragging us back to the episode, love. Uh, so I, I'm really glad you're here to talk to us about this one because it's so intense. It covers a lot of really important moments and themes from the book. Um, but before we dive in too much, one of the things I wanted to say was that for, for me, watching it now after seeing all of season two was just a totally different experience than watching it the first time. And Danny, I was kind of wondering if, if that was the same for you, if you had a different experience, like, what did you think of the episode the first time you saw it? Um, gosh, pulling back to where when I first saw it, I was <laughs> I was like so invested and so into it, and then the end happened with, with Julia, and I just remember being so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was I was like, this has been a hilarious episode, and then I kept thinking like, when's the drama gonna happen? Like, when's the beast gonna happen? And then they just kind of like. I was like, there's no way he's going to die. There's, like, five minutes left. And then what they did, what they did, I was just like, I was like, I see what you're doing here, but I was still, like, upset about it. And I've seen (laughs) it so many times now, like, because I've rewatched it on my own a few times, but I've also shown the show to so many people and watched it with them. 
Yeah. I've seen the episode so many times, and I'm about to... No, I already rewatched it with my girlfriend, because we're in season two, but it's been a... I don't know how I feel about it now. I, I, I feel like it, it gets less funny hmm. the more you watch it. I think you're right that it gets less funny. For me, it was, I don't know, it was really interesting in part because, like, the first time around, there are all these little things that upset me when I watched it because they were, like, changes from the books. And I didn't know where the show was going to go with them. I didn't really trust John and Sarah and the rest of the writers yet. I was kind of like, what are you doing to to my beloved books? Uh, (laughs) And uh, then so much happened in season two that really changed how I saw it. So, like... I don't know. There were just like all of these little little things that completely changed my perspective. I wasn't angry this time. I was just invested. And mm-hmm. I don't know, Lev. What did you? What were your initial thoughts? I have this like weird memory that you were live tweeting that episode, and you were like two or three minutes ahead of me because my internet was total crap and like streaming kept putting me behind. And I remember at one point you tweeted something like, "Well, that was unnecessary," and I never figured out what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, wow, I'd really have to go back. Um, <laughs> I'm tweeting out of sync because uh, I don't have cable. Uh-huh. And, um, I'm always a little unsure as to where we are in the episode when everybody's tweeting. So I'm always trying to figure it out from Arjun's tweets what has actually been wrong. <laughs> uh, and so it's complicated. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what was unnecessary. Um, what were your reactions to it in general? Like... Well, it's interesting. I went back and I rewatched it. And I also went back and read through my notes, which were my reaction to the script when I was first sent it. And then my reaction to the uh, rough cut of the episode. Uh, mm-hmm. I always I send them extensive notes at each sort of stage of the process. So it was interesting to reread my notes um, <laughs> <laughs> at each stage. Uh, there were things that I, I, I really liked a lot. Um, uh, I always like when young Martin's on screen. I, I really like mm. that actor. Um, I find him sort of intense in an interesting way. There's a lot of pathos to him. Um, uh, I remember um, initially, I actually sent them some, I, I did something that I rarely do, which I sent some rewritten lines from the initial script. Um, hmm. Um, when I read the initial script, there were a couple things that I rewrote, um, which which also I'd usually ended up going in. So there's a couple lines in the very last scene, which um, which I wrote because I thought that that they weren't quite right in the script uh, as was. The script also changed a lot from um, from the script stage to the actual what they shot, um, and I think in part because it was a really complicated episode. Mm. Um, some things ended up being possible and some things not. Some things ended up working really well and the cutting and the re-editing and stuff like that. So it actually changed a lot. Um, I think Josh died initially in the early draft of the script, which I which I strongly objected to because I like Josh. <laughs> um, and again... Look, now he's, now he's I'm full-time. I'm sure they're very, very <laughs> glad that they changed that. They, they took that note. Trevor owes me big time. I don't know if he's listening <laughs> to this, but... Um, uh, yeah, I really like Trevor's work on the show. Also like him personally. So um, uh, and so I was like, are you sure you want to lose this guy because he's so good? Uh, yeah, I don't know. They were, I, it was, they were rewatching it. I was, I was reminded how much I like seeing, um, Quentin and Julia on screen together. 
Um, they are so often sent off to different parts of the universe. Uh, it's, it's, it was fun to watch them team up um, in uh, that first bit of the episode and go into Fillory together. I thought that was managed really well. And those two actors just are really fun to see together. And the bit about them being like, what, the fool and the witch or whatever, um, and oh, turns out that they were in the books. That was very clever and, 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 and funny and, and, and well handled. Mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It was funny to see old old Finn, um, who yeah. sort of <laughs> stealth recast. I don't exactly know what happened there. I mean, it's great because it got us uh, Brittany, but that's a funny. That was a funny thing to um, to have happened. Purportedly, she got a full time role. That's that's what I'm told. <laughs> so well, she left for I, for the good reasons. <laughs> that's good. That's good. It's all it all it all worked out well for him. <laughs> um, so I actually I want to maybe we should. I don't. I don't know where to start. Should, do we start with Julia, which gets depressing fast, or do we end with Julia? Oh, I don't know. Let's just let's just let's just dive in. All right. Well, so uh, yeah. I mean, th- there is a scene in this episode where Julia is raped by Reynard the Fox, um, who, unlike in the books, takes the physical form of somebody very close to Julia, um, of yeah. Richard okay. from the Free Traders. Yeah, it really does. Um, it, honest, I love it. I hate it, but I love it because it like there's parts like in season two where she talks a uh, like anytime Richards just brought up is just like you just see her face fall. Um, I, I like those those moments and she it gave us those moments. So it's it did. Sad, but and I think that scene in season two in the bowling alley in uh, in the underworld where she sees real Richard for the first time in a very long time. Uh, you know, the, the facial expressions she makes, the like feelings you see going through um, her mind uh, in that moment are, are things that could not have happened otherwise. That I remember that was, I don't know if they would have done that anyway, but I sent them a strong note saying when she sees Richard again, she has to, she has to react with shock because she's seeing that person who raped her. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I mean, I think Stella did an amazing job. Or she's she's really good at portraying complicated feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Great in this episode, and she has a really hard job to do, and she does it really well. She really does. And I guess part of what I wanted to ask, um, we've talked about this a couple times before with other people, is, um, you know, I remember when we first talked to you and we asked you about that scene in the book, uh, you said something, and, and the thing that always sticks with me is um, you said you wanted to reinscribe the horror of um, that kind of circumstance where God rapes, rapes a mortal. Um, and one thing that struck me when I saw this episode was just how how much how horrifying it is, and how it like it's more horrifying in a lot of psychological ways that it's somebody who she that it at least looks like somebody she trusts. Um, and I, I don't know. I was curious about how you like what you thought about the decision and if you like how much you knew about it going in. It sounds like you saw several versions of the script. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that they were going to do it that way until I saw the script. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, it's really painful to watch. Um, yeah. In some ways, seeing that, seeing, seeing, just seeing it, seeing a scene like that, uh, it, it becomes even more painful when you take it out of words and 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 make it make it visual and graphic. I, yeah. I certainly felt that way about about Game of Thrones. Um, mm. There's some scenes I just can't watch. Um, I know what happens in them. I just I just I just don't want to see them on screen. Um, 
Yes, the screen. This scene is a, it's a really it's a really painful topic to me, um, mm. um, and that I have co- I have complicated feelings about it. Not not totally untinged with regret. Um, mm. So, um, um, you know, it was painful to watch. It made it more visceral in a way that it was. Yeah, that this, that that Raynard took the took the form of uh, Richard, somebody that she trusted, a really appealing, you know, humane actor, um, who uh, then has to transform in this terrifying way. Um, you know, it 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 calls to mind the fact that uh, I think statistically most rapes are done by by people yeah. the victim knows. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a painful, really intense topic. I think that last part that you mentioned was one of the things that, I mean, I found this incredibly painful to watch, uh, but I also really appreciated it for exactly that reason, right? Like this is, uh, this is a fantasy TV show, but it's showing you something that, that very strongly reflects how, uh, how this happens in real life, right? It, um, I think that we don't get that often in television. We don't like almost all of the rapes that are in television are either like, humongously um they're like game of thrones in that they're like weirdly romanticized and uh i don't know sort of like written into a fabric of a world and in kind of a a way that you that hasn't doesn't feel like it has much to do with reality or they're just like straight up just stranger rapes um that uh happen in movies or tv for often not particularly good reasons and I think that, like, I don't know, for me, I really appreciated that um, that kind of bold move, even though I didn't like watching it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's something authentic about it, and it certainly doesn't normalize or romanticize um, yeah. in any way. Uh, I mean, w- what I had in mind when I initially started writing it was, you know, look at the way this kind of rape is depicted in literature, look at Lita and the Swan, you know, in that Yeats poem, look at, at Daphne and Apollo. Um, they never tell these stories the way that they would be experienced by the human in real life, which is as, mm. which is as horror. Um, and it certainly translates as, as, as horrific on the screen. And, you know, they play it that way. They also don't drag it out, you know, um, gratuitously. Um, yeah, no, they handled it. I thought they handled it with some integrity. That was good. Mm. And the performances are, are amazing. Danny, was there anything that you wanted to to add about that? Um, it was really hard to watch. It was quite different in, in some aspects from the book, but it was pretty similar at the same time. You mean just sort of like in the general feel? Yeah, the general feel. I mean, like, I feel like in the show, like, their whole like want to summon a god is just feels kind of random. Mm. At least it's just like not as thoroughly planned out. It feels like it's rushed because you know it's TV. Um, like in well, the, the books, it's are, like the reasons are much more personal in the show, right? Like they're all trying to right some specific wrong in their lives. It's, yeah. it's less about the sort of intellectual challenge. Yeah, in the books, they're very just like. <laughs> kind of stupidly do it but I loved her like reservations about it mm. she always had reservations 
I, I will say that I, I was sorry that the, the free traders don't get worked up into kind of their own characters. Uh, yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. they, they, I remember reading along in the series season and sort of thinking, wow, when are they going to fit all this in? And <laughs> they, they just don't. They sort of, they, they go really fast. And it's sort of a missed opportunity. Um, I can see that they definitely had, you know, dramatic and practical reasons why they did it that way. Um, but I was, yeah, I was sorry that there wasn't a big run-up where this becomes a big arc and then, you know, this is the horrific conclusion where it all comes crashing down. Um, it actually happens, uh, I mean, the free traders, I think they're there and gone in, in two or three episodes. Yeah. yeah. You see more of Richard um, than anyone and, of course, Katie. But... It is, it's sad because, like, I mean, honestly, like, we named our our whole, like, fandom basically after the Free Traders, <laughs> so it's kind of like, obviously we took it a little personally, but... <laughs> I still take it a little personally that we've been supposedly renamed Florians. I- I'm not having uh, any of that. <laughs> uh, no, handed, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't involved with that. Uh, we didn't think so. <laughs> so. <laughs> and I think you were like, I think you did vote on it. You were like, my opinion shouldn't matter, but I, I, I think you voted on it and you did not vote for Florians, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, I think everybody's mostly forgotten about that, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, actually, speaking of, of sort of the... the uh, free traders getting short shrift. I think one of the things that I was saddest about, even though I totally understand it, especially by the time that we get to this episode, was uh, they introduce a character, Pouncy Silver Kitten, and then she gets no lines. <laughs> when will I ever think of a better character name than Pouncy Silver Kitten? I'm so disappointed <laughs> that you know they didn't they didn't go to town on that. Yeah, no lines. Very sad. Uh, and I would have liked to see a little more from that. Wait, did she have no lines? Um, I don't think I don't think they had any lines. Um, it, I think the only free traders. Oh no, no, you're right. There's like maybe a couple in this episode, or the one before. Isn't there like in the underworld they talk, right? Yeah. I oh. Think the, and maybe in the party scene, I I I haven't rewatched that for a while. Yeah, you might be right, but either way, like, doesn't get the full backstory, and I don't know. I just I loved that about Pouncy that. Um, in the books, he was so, um, in the books, Pouncey was like, I don't know. I really feel like he was, uh, Julia's match in so many ways. Uh, you know, this equally, uh, driven and brilliant person who is like deeply empty inside <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, not, not to take anything away from Richard, who I think is a really successful character, um, uh, yeah, I think he's a really successful character. Such in an job. interesting blended character they decided to make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just a really, really interesting and blended. Um, and I mean, Mackenzie, I think, uh, ha- had very little concept of what they were going to do with his character <laughs> from the beginning. When we talked to him, he sounded like he was very surprised. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Um, so there were a couple of things I wanted to talk about about Julia, and one of the things that I noticed this time that uh, really sort of struck me after watching season two was this promise Quentin makes to Jane to protect Julia, um, and then this promise that he makes to Julia after she, after her memory is restored to help her kill Renard, and he he ultimately doesn't really do either. Um, 
And I think that, like, we were talking in the last episode about how so many fans who came to it through the show really don't find Julia to be a sympathetic character or they don't like her. Yes, that's how I feel about it, too. <laughs> I think that was Danny, but I'm not positive. <laughs> um, but I think, like, seeing this made me feel like, how do they not notice? How do they not notice that, like, Quentin makes all these promises to and about her, and then he just does not deliver? Yeah. I'm, trying to, to, I'm trying to decide if I agree with that or not. Uh, <laughs> that's such a Quentin thing to do, though. Make a promise, but not deliver. Oh, yeah. do you think that's true? <laughs> I love that. No, I mean, I think it's true. I mean, he eventually grows up and then, like, he gets there, but it's definitely yeah. something he would have done. In, it's in a book one point. Quentin thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Book, book, book one. One to yeah. one, five, sort of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know, what did you decide? Do you agree? What, that he breaks his promise? Yeah. I mean, the part about protecting her is not his fault because... Like, no, it's not his fault. <laughs> Ember's just an asshole. <laughs> I, I wonder, too, in retrospect, how he feels about that. Like, if he feels like he broke this promise. I'm sure he does. Yeah. And he kind of makes the promise again um, in season two after she's lost her shade. And he's like, I will do anything to help you kill him now that I have nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the interesting thing is I think like I think that he does a better job of helping her in season two. Like even when everyone else is against her, right? Like I, I, I love that scene where they meet and they're both angry and hurt, uh, but they both help each other. Even yeah. though it's like even though the people who they are with and the and you know, even though it's kind of against each of their individual goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets quite complicated in part because they're running they're running the Julia and Quentin stories uh, um, and Alice stories really all very much yeah. sort of front and center and in parallel. Um, obviously, in the books, Alice fades out for book two when she's off, you know, being a demon or whatever. <laughs> uh, and it, 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 there's much more of that story of, of of Quentin and Julia working their shit out. Um, Quentin stays very focused on Alice in the show. Um, with all the Julia stuff happening at the same time, uh, I can see why his attention is um, uh, a little bit divided. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I do love though that one of my favorite scenes from to come out of season two is probably when uh, Niff and Alice is taking over Quentin's body and. He's having a conversation. She's having a conversation with Julia, and oh, it's great! Just, <laughs> yeah. They're just—you can just yeah. tell right then and there that they're pre- two sides of the same coin. Those characters. Yeah, that was very good how they did that. <laughs> um, so then, the only other question I have related to Julia is—it's kind of like a philosophical question. And I just kind of want us to speculate. One of the things that is so fascinating to me is that, like, Julia is her old self in this episode, right? Like, she is. Uh, happy and, you know, light in a way that she will not be again. <laughs> um, and uh, it made me think about all the stuff that we, we sort of come into contact with around Shades in yeah. the second season. And it made me kind of wonder if Shade is linked to memory or, like, if like, if that's kind of part of what 
the show forces us to to believe. Mm. Oh, crickets. I hate it. <laughs> it means I asked a bad question. <laughs> no, it's not a bad question. This it, it, because it's this there's something going on with Julia. What I think about when when I look at the at, at Julia's character, I think about how difficult it is to do a character like that on TV. Mm-hmm. When you have when you're when you're writing a, a, a novel, a, a char- someone like Julia can often seem quite quite difficult and unappealing um, from the outside because she doesn't make she she's not interested in making herself pleasant. Um, when you can sort of crack her open in a novel and sort of do her do the inside of what's going on, you know, play the inside uh, of her off the outside, um, you get a much. She becomes much more sympathetic. You can see why she's being the way she is. Um, uh, I think in the show they struggle to show the inside of Julia and the outside um, uh, as clearly, just because they can't do it interior monologue. You can't get that sort of black humor that's always going on inside mm-hmm. Julia. Um, and you can't see how much she's struggling with all the time. Um, and I said, in a way, I, I, they, I feel like they go out of their way sometimes to um, take that stuff off of Julia, either to give to, to mess with her memory or take away her shade, just so Stella can, like, you know, uh, um, have some fun with Julia. Um, yeah. But, uh, otherwise, she's not that much fun. Julia is constantly sidelined, so they're kind of just like, let's just give her something dramatic to work with. I feel like that's. Definitely well, something they do. I don't think she's sidelined at all in season two, but Lev, I think you're right that like a lot of what's missing is her humor. Um in in the books, right? Like there's so much funny about uh there's so much funny that comes from her. That's so much there's so much of that like biting, sarcastic, you know, the like uh lovable, <laughs> curmudgeonly I don't know, she's like a lovable sociopath in a lot of ways. <laughs> I would really love to I just want to see the scene between her and Quentin where they're on the Munjack and she opens the door and is just like not wearing clothes and and Quentin is just like what the fuck and then she's like I'm sorry I forget to be human sometimes I you know I, I really love that in part because for me it's like the f- it's like one of the first times that I think Quentin sees her as a separate person and not just like the object of his affections yeah yeah um and and I love that. I love that he like I love that like the thing that snaps him into place into being like you need to see this person as a whole person is is seeing her kind of at her most vulnerable uh yeah, at, at her most vulnerable and at her least human. It's like that's the thing that makes him realize like or her being vulnerable is what makes him realize this is not the Julia that I knew. Mm-hmm. One of the big breakthrough moments for me, in, in, in writing the books, was the first time that Julia sees Quentin, uh, and when and we're in Julia's head and not in mm. uh, Quentin's head, and she describes him from her point of view, which is the first time that 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 ever happens, and we can actually see what Quentin looks like to a sort of semi-normal person from the outside, uh, but we never quite get that Julia's eye view uh, point of view in the uh, in the show. When I was watching, when I was rewatching. 113. Um, I was struck early on in the episode. Uh, I kind of had forgotten where we were in the storyline, and Quentin and Julia were having such a good time. And I thought, God, they're so great together. You know, she's such a great character. And then I remembered, no wonder she's so happy and so easy to watch. It's because she has a memory patch and has forgotten everything that ever happened to her that was bad. And then it all comes crashing down again. <laughs> yeah. <Poor Julia. laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let, let's move on to something slightly happier. <laughs> uh, I don't know, let's talk about Ember. 
is this what either of you expected? Love, no. let's start with... Okay, well, then, Danny, <laughs> let's start with you. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just love the idea of these, like, little, like, half, like half-human-sized talking sheets just running around. <laughs> like, I, that's what I wanted. I, I wouldn't even care if they were cartoonish. Like, I just wanted... <laughs> The funny thing is, I think that, like, this version of Ember felt way more cartoonish to me than Ember in the book. Like, Ember in the book is all full of this, like, I mean, as you eventually find out, it's kind of like a false gravity, right? Like, but he's, he's so serious and so, like, you know, he also doesn't use contractions um, and uh, just sort of wanders around uh, declaring um, that people will become heroes or experience sacrifices or generally be doomed to some fate uh he's and, definitely just more humorous well general. right <laughs> like we talked about this a little bit last time you were on love but like he's he's <laughs> ember in the show is a chaotic force in the world yeah 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 <laughs> i mean you know in the books obviously we're playing with aslan we're playing with narnia um it you know uh he's a kind of figure for um Quentin to sort of attach some of his Oedipal rage to his just general, you know, anger at the universe. If you've ever wanted, you know, God to be like right there where you could yell at him for everything that's wrong, you know, that was sort of some of the fun of having um, uh, uh, Ember be sort of right there in the world. Um, um, no one ever yells at Aslan in, in, a, in the way that I really want them to. So I sort of but one of the things I wanted to do retelling that story was just put God there where you could yell at him. Um, <laughs> but Ember in the show, he's, uh, well, I don't know. He's sort of, I, I like Ember in the show. I think he was yeah. really successful the way they, they, they did him. Uh, uh, but he's ridiculous in a, in a different way, but also appalling and indifferent to human life. <laughs> um, you know, in some of the ways that I recognize and was kind of hoping for. Uh, and, you know, you got to give it to that actor. He really, owns the part of being oh, a depraved, so you know, um, depraved sem- semi-humanoid ram god. Um, I would I would be interested to see him, though, like, before Martin. <laughs> <laughs> like, what they, if the show would ever give us, like, a flashback episode of kind of, like, what they were uh, like What before. he's like, the chat ones. <laughs> yeah, it was like, was he skinny, like, uh, like Umber? <laughs> or was he still, like... <laughs> given up on everything. I, I have to say that one of my, like, what, one of my favorite little pleasures of the show has been every time Do- Dominic Burgess makes, makes some kind of introductory noise, the like, oh, right? Like he sounds like he's doing singing exercises. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, no, it's fun. It made, made the, the series, fin- uh, so the season finale of, of, of the second season makes a nice bookend to, um, to this episode. Uh, yes. <laughs> and he really, um, it, it's sad, he's gone, we, we'll, we'll never get him again, but um, he really, um, he goes out with a bang in that one. <laughs> yeah. And this was actually, this was one of the things that I, I was like really deeply uncertain about the first time I watched this episode was like, I I saw Ember and I was like, what is happening? What are they doing? Do they not understand that this is important? (laughs) Uh, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like they get it at least a little bit, but uh, (laughs) I just, I remember having like a really strong negative reaction to Ember and I I got one over, I think. (laughs) Um, So the other like, 
big character thing I want to talk about was Elliot. Uh, this is another thing that like uh, drove me nuts when I saw it the first time. Like Elliot is forced to marry Fen, mm. and I think I, I mean there's so much wrong with that in my pers- from my perspective. Uh, not least, in fact, probably most that uh, no, don't do that to poor Elliot. Um, and I mean, don't do that to poor Finn either, but you know, right. <laughs> uh, at least she likes men. Uh, the, when I saw it the first time though, I remember, I think part of my anger came from thinking that it was like the rules of fillery that the high king had, that he had to marry Fen to become high king. And that's part of what upset me. And rewatching it this time, I realized that wasn't it. It was about pay- payment for the Leo blade. Yeah. Um, and that made a little more sense. <laughs> a little more. It's a little, it's, it's still a little, um, um, it's still a tiny bit. Um, oh. I thought it was a tiny bit forced. Um, they wanted to do it and they wanted to figure out a way to make it happen. Um, uh, it's uh, not the most graceful bit of, of, of plotting um, <laughs> ever. Yeah, I think I, I think I was like a little more comfortable with it coming from outside though. Like being this is a medieval there's a medieval power structure going on here and like if the knife maker is low on the totem pole, yeah, he would want his family to have some of that power. Uh so, I don't know. It made me feel slightly better about it. Um though honestly more things that happened in season two made me feel better about it than just like re noticing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think and you know, Elliot's sexuality is it's always been I, people, I don't know if anybody, if we ever use the word gay about Elliot. I mean, his sexuality is pretty fluid. Um, he kind of likes who he likes. Um, it didn't bother me that much that uh, that he had to get um, paired up with a woman because I never actually thought of him as strictly speaking gay. Hmm. Can you say more about that? <laughs> I, I, I just sort of thought, I sort of it was kind of yeah. what's there's got to be an expression for this. Just sort of universally sexual he just oh pansexual yeah pansexual i just thought of him as pansexual hmm he kind of declines to be defined in any sort of strict way and yeah it seems like he's mostly focused on guys but um uh i didn't want any sort of gavel pounding kind of no ladies no ladies for elliot ever (laughs) you know Um, i I kind of like the i kind of like the thai food metaphor in season two (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> Where it's like it's like you think, oh, okay, Thai food, yeah, sort of interesting from time to time, but now it's Thai, all Thai food all the time. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> I pretty much covered it. I mean, I always viewed him as pretty sexually fluid. Like he'll kind of do whatever as long as you know it has consent. But even probably creatures, I could see him being like a Josh. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's more Margot's territory than. <laughs> <laughs> but he probably romantically wouldn't really want to be with a woman. Yeah. But I also don't really see him as a romantic person, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Those are my main those are my main like character points. Were there other big plot points we wanted that anyone wanted to talk about? Hmm. It was moving to see um Jane Chatwin, grown up Jane Chatwin again. Mm. I thought that was um uh, I thought that was grace, gracefully handled, and I like that yeah. actor a lot. Um, it was good to see her again. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that, like, oh, I remember this time, but not the first time, like, that Quentin just kind of, like, blithely tells her she's going to die. 
<laughs> there had to have been a more tactful way to do it, but I guess that's just not quite. Well, also yeah, no. full full violation of the temporal prime directive. Like, come on, Quentin. <laughs> as a nerd, as a nerd, he should probably have known that. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it is a beautiful scene. Like watching her reaction to that is is really is, is really fascinating. Uh, I don't know. I still I don't know. I still kind of hope they can find a way to to make Jane not perma dead or whatever. <laughs> To I, think, I think it's season six of Doctor Who, and there's one. It's the Impossible Astronaut, where where the Doctor dies at the beginning, and then they can't. Then they see past mm-hmm. Doctor, and they can't tell him that he's going to die. And watching this episode right after watching that episode, oh yeah, with <laughs> that, like, oh my god, come on, man. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it'll come back to bite Quentin at some point. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do have the sense, I'm not on the inside of these things, but I do have a sense that maybe we're not completely a thousand percent done with that character forever. Mm-hmm. I'm just sad we haven't even seen young Jane Chatwin at all. <laughs> oh. She was totally absent from season two, wasn't she? I don't think she's was in she? it at all. Huh. Huh. Well, yeah, we'll have to, uh, maybe I have to go back and watch season two again <laughs> for the okay. fourth time. <laughs> um... Okay, so I, I think we should move on to fashion. Oh, I don't there was one other thing I wanted to say. Oh, okay. What happened to Quentin's book that he was writing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quentin writes a Fillory book or starts doing it. <laughs> and where is he writing this? Like, where is, like, uh, when is this happening? <laughs> it's just in a hut somewhere. Some hut where he happens to be. I kind of pictured it as being like, uh, you know, after Penny sneaks off during the wedding, I kind of figure like Quentin sneaks off during the um, during the reception is like, I'm going to write my book about how I am a hero. (laughs) Yeah, it was hard to tell if he was like writing it and then like coming back as things were happening or like (laughs) this is all after it happened. I don't know. I feel like it can't be fully after the fact because like it can't be after... I feel like it's before he he has that conversation that we that we listened to in the clip with Alice. It's before he makes the decision um, that he's not going to be the hero. I sort of pictured it as being well. I guess it has to be after they. Yeah. When does it happen? Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Future fan theory episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Let's move on to fashion. I want to make sure that we keep along. Um, I will start. And to say that, like, one of the, I, you know, we don't really get much of the, like, core group fashion anymore because they didn't change their clothes since last time and they're not going to for another few episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the Felorian outfits that stood out to me, the one that stood out most, was Fen's wedding outfit. And part of it is, I th- like, she's wearing these shoes that look almost like hooves. Her dress looks like, you know, it's these natural materials, like maybe linen or even burlap maybe, and then, like, lace. And then she has this, like, crown of, like, mossy stuff. It's really um, and it felt really, really Narnian. And I think because of the shoes, I kept looking at it and I was like, she looks like, she looks a little like my original image of Mr. Tumnus from the back, which is such an odd look to to expect for like someone on their wedding. But I thought it was I really a, cool. I have a funny thing to say about Mr. Tumnus. So one of my best <laughs> friends thinks that James McAvoy is only very attractive when he's Mr. Tumnus and not <laughs> normally. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like everyone has that. 
<laughs> Everyone has that like one that one weird thing, and it's probably more about the character than it is about like. <laughs> but being he's actually kind of creepy if you think about it. How he like drugs her, like <laughs> oh, everything about it is kind of creepy. But <laughs> Mo- moving on, but I think that uh, outfit in this is really ugly. <laughs> Her wedding oh. outfit is so ugly. Oh. I thought it was kind of cool, but I, I also did think that she looked like a satyr. So <laughs> there you well, go. Well, you also don't even see her face. Like, you never see her face. And I'm like, what does this girl actually look like? Uh, really bothered me. But I guess they kind of maybe did that just knowing they were going to have to recast her. <laughs> uh, Lev, I don't know how much you participated in fashion last time. Did you notice anything this time? Um, you know, I'm just, I'm not a big fashion Guy, for some, I always hated the, um, the the dress that Alice wore in this one with all the zigzaggies mm. on it. Uh, <laughs> it's really the only thing that stands out to me. Um, Didn't I Olivia, think Olivia like, pick that? Pick out that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Did- that's, all I've, that's really all I've got to bring to the table. I think she doesn't like it anymore either because she had to wear it for so much. But I remember her saying something about like it, it reminded her of a playing card, and that's why she picked it. Mm. Oh, did she pick it? Yeah. No, it's bad. <laughs> she told us that during our interview with her, I believe. I think so, yeah. Um, but also, she totally hates it now because she wore it for like six episodes. Uh, so <laughs> you don't have to feel too bad. <laughs> Which in reality is what, like six weeks? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's a while. Um, Danny, were there any other ones you noticed? Um... I have like a whole list, so I could just go on. I know you can. Um, <laughs> I love Julia's outfit. Of course. Um, well, I you love that love look, outfit. that like pea coat with like the yeah. the Bloomingdale's like you know Burberry scarf. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like that look. Uh, and, she pulls it off really well. And you got to give it up for Martin. I mean, young Martin. Yes. Uh, oh, I actually give it up to both Martins. I really both. like the sharp suit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, but, you know, young, even though he's an emotionally damaged schoolboy, um, he's a sharp dresser. <laughs> I I kind of, go ahead. I always remember just thinking back, like, how, I mean, I know I've read the books, but they make it so abundantly clear, like, who the beast is in the show. And I remember actually being shocked in the book, like, oh, whoa. uh yeah i remember that too i remember feeling really shocked i I remember now like that whole story and how it comes i like like rupert's retelling of it in the third book Um, oh yeah uh, because just like watching like his his narration of how he lost his brother is so different from jane's Mm -hmm. um and I thought it was so interesting to see, like, their different relationships um, with Martin. Well, in the show, they made Jane and Rupert twins, correct? I thought Jane and... Were Jane and Rupert twins or Jane and Martin twins? I'm not sure. They were twins. <laughs> well, there was twins. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so then the, the, I want to mention at least one other outfit, which is the Watcher Woman... Uh, older Jane, that cloak is amazing. And I love the drawing of her that they show us that's like supposed to be from the Fillory books. Um, yeah. I kind of like imagine that as concept art for, like, as like Mogali's concept art for um, 
And it's so funny, yeah. I forgot about that completely. She does look good. She always looks good. Yeah. I mean, you know, even just the curls are, like, they, they are a character all in themselves, or her curls. That's <laughs> right, though. I wonder where that is and who did it and, yeah. <laughs> Seeing if you can get your hands on it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm feeling that, I'm having that itchy-fingered feeling where I want to steal a prop. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever stolen a prop? I've never successfully stolen a prop. Um, the only <laughs> thing I've stolen from set was... Um, um, one of the card catalog cards from the um, from the library of the Netherlands. I do have one of those. Um, That's a great steal. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they printed like a hundred thousand of them, so you know, it was not. It wasn't like the highest of the century, but I did. I did get away. I did get away with it. <laughs> um. Okay, uh, I'm going to move us on to MVP. I want to make sure that we get off before it gets too late for you. It's already too late for you. What am I talking about? Um, for me, this was, I don't know, it's always really difficult for me to pick an MVP. But in this episode, I think especially, um, Stella gives a great performance. So does Jason. So does Arjun. Um, and I, I realized that um, this time around, uh, Arjun does something that he hasn't really done before. Um, at least not up until this point, because we see Penny feel guilty for something. He feels guilty for not rescuing Victoria sooner, and he expresses that out loud, which we just, you know, we don't see that kind of vulnerability from Penny almost ever. Um, and I don't know, then there's, I think, you know, Mackenzie Aston does an amazing job. He has to play two, like, diametrically opposed characters. Um, Margot deals with all of her complicated feelings about Elliot, so I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defer and actually... Danny, how about you go first? <laughs> I have to split mine between both Stella and Jason. Um, they just completely... Like, Stella, of course, just... What she had to do in that episode... Yeah, be com- two completely different Julias in an episode. Just she pretty much deserves it, and then but I also really love Jason, and he just fully embodies Quentin in that episode in so many ways. It just between the two of them, it's too it's really hard. But probably Stella has the edge. Yeah, you know I think I, I think you're probably right. I think I would probably give it to Stella too. Um, I don't know. It's a hard one, isn't it? <laughs> I, I completely agree with you guys. Um, I mean, Jason, he has a lot of hard work to do in this episode. It's it's a, it, it's an episode that runs through a lot of plot, and he kind of has to tie it all together. Um, but no one's working harder than Stella. And, you know, all the crazy, terrible things that are happening in the subconscious of the show kind of all has to have to come out through her. And, um, you know, she really... Um, she makes it happen. It's it's amazing to watch. I think rewatching um, rewatching the first season has made me appreciate appreciate even more what a spectacular actress she is. Uh, she does so much every single time, and I think like I think when I was watching the first season, I was so the first time um, I was so caught up in how my image of Julia was different from what Stella was doing that I think I, I, I didn't give her enough credit. <laughs> and uh, this time around, I, I, I really want to give her more credit. Um, I don't know, ratings? Ratings? Hmm. 
<laughs> uh, okay, I'll start us off with this one, and I will actually take a stand. Um, I, I've just sort of decided that in season three, I need to like make myself a rubric because I so painted myself in a corner in both season one and season two. But I do really like this episode. I'd probably go with a nine out of ten. Uh, Lev, what about you? <laughs> I, I'm always I'm a big fan of you know of keeping a lot of sort of overhead space in the ratings <laughs> area. So um, uh, I'm going to give it um, I'm going to give it an eight point seven five. That top end, um, you know, for great things to come. I'm I am sure that that quarter point will will. Stand you so much better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Danny, how about you? Have you brought me little ratings? I was hoping Lev would say eight so that I could pull an eight point five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're just so we're just going in quarter increments this time. I see how it is. <laughs> I would say I'm between like an eight and a an eight and a nine. Yeah, that's what eight point five is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, well, that's that's this episode, then. This is our final episode of season one. Uh, Lev, it is always a pleasure to have you. I'm really excited that we've gotten to have you for two finales. I hope we can keep that up. Um, listeners, thanks for sticking it out with us through the hiatus, at least this much of it. We don't really have a ton planned for the rest of it, so things might be a bit sporadic. If we are able to get some more interviews, we'll do that. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. That way you can see whenever we have a new episode or interview. And if you have suggestions for magicians-related content you want to see before January, uh, I don't know, like, 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 say, hey, you want us to talk about like weird fan theories? Totally up to do that. Tweet us. We just changed our Twitter handle. It is now Physical Kids Pod. So easier to say, haha, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, Lev, any last words before January? <laughs> no, I mean I I know that they're they're filming up storm in Vancouver. Uh, I haven't been out to the set yet, but um, I'm really psyched to go because greatest thing in my whole contract is that they have to fly me first class. Um, <laughs> but also because I love um, hanging out with the actors. Um, we should do a we should do a podcast from set sometime. Uh, I would love that. Bring all of your friends from the show. <laughs> that would be really chaotic actually. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stella, Stella and Jason can always elude us. <laughs> yeah. We'll get uh, them. Really great talking to you. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, bye, listeners. Bye, everyone. See you next time. All right. Mind slide. Lucy. It is a really fantastic movie.